Awesome. Fantastic. Let's give it up for our worship team. So grateful for them and the hearts and the time that they put into this stuff. The service has been great so far. And appreciate Aaron and, and uh, Herman sharing for us today. Um, proud of you, Aaron, too. That's so awesome. I love, I love being able to hear. Whenever somebody hits, hits some milestones as a disciple, it's a reason to celebrate. So very proud of you, bro. Very grateful for you. And Herman, it's great news about your job. You know, I do love, I, I do love hearing stories like that too, because I think what Herman said is right on that, that when we, when we are about honoring God and we're even willing to say no to things that sound appealing for the sake of our relationship with God, He wants to provide for us. And so I really appreciate that. But uh, I want to definitely welcome everybody again. Thank you so much for being here. If you're visiting with us, we want to especially extend a welcome to you. Uh, we're excited to be able to be here, and, and I'm really grateful to be here to be able to preach today. Because as a church, you know, we've been we've been exploring an important side of Jesus, and uh, Jesus' life, as we know, changed everything for all of mankind. Right? It changed everything for every human being as we know it. But part of what makes Jesus so incredible is not just what he did for the collective, but it's also the, uh, the, the, the stories, the, the personal affecting that he did of individuals in their relationship with him. And our hope is as we study these things, it's, uh, the, the title of our series behind us, What's Your Story?, um, is that through studying these transformations, through looking at these encounters, these times where people met with Jesus for real for the first time, and, and hearing from other people and their stories uh, that get to share alongside of this, that, that you will see how much Jesus can change and affect your story. Amen. That you get to be a part of the bigger story that God has and how much He wants to be a part of shifting your trajectory in life. And today, uh, the title for my sermon today is More Than a Name. I'm going to say a prayer here and then, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump into things. Father, I do just want to thank you so much for the, the, the chance that we have right now just to, to be in your presence, God, to be in your word together. So grateful for Jesus and, and, and all that he has done to affect our lives. I really pray for us as we really, uh, we really want to examine uh, these stories as, as, he, as he impacted people's lives and to really see how much you want to still affect our lives going forward. Uh, I really pray that you just help to open our ears and our hearts, help us to be ready to receive your word. Uh, I pray that you really speak powerfully through me and through your Holy Spirit. God, we love you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at the most unique encounter with Jesus in the entire New Testament. We're going to look at a young man whose life and trajectory were completely changed and transformed by meeting Jesus. And it changed him from being a self-righteous, self-assured, murderous, religious zealot to being one of the most important men in Christianity, and I would even argue one of the most important men in all of world history. Today we're going to look at a man named Saul. And before we get into the scriptures about him, we need to look at his background a little bit. Because he shows up kind of later on in his life. But, uh, but this guy Saul was a Jew that was raised in Tarsus, who was also a Roman citizen. And this is an important thing, especially for later in his life. But not a lot of Jews got to experience the joy of being able to be a Roman citizen. And we're, not, we're not given the, much, uh, the, the, the treatment that came with that. But uh, he was also a very intelligent man. 
and at a young age was sent to Jerusalem to learn as a disciple under the, one of the most important and influential rabbis of the first century, a man named Gamaliel. In Acts 5, actually, this guy shows up here uh, when, when, James, or when uh, John and Peter are under trial. Gamaliel shows up and it says that he was a teacher of the law who was honored by all of the people. This man was so influential. He was such an amazing Pharisee and teacher that he was just revered by everybody. He actually saved Peter and, and, and John's life in that moment because people respected his word, his wisdom so much. This guy actually looking at, looking at some of the history behind him, he was listed as the head of, of, of all of the schools and synagogues for the Jews in the first century. There was some sermon I heard actually this week that was talking about I can't remember, they call him like, the, like a voice of honey or something like that. They said that when he preached the word of God, it was so effective, so wise, and so well-spoken that it was like devouring the word of God with honey. He was an incredible man. And this is the guy that Saul learned underneath. So for context, that's like sitting at the feet of Stephen Hawking if you're a physicist. Right? If you're wanting to be a physicist, learning from this guy would be a good thing. Or if you wanted to become a basketball player, sitting at the feet of Michael Jordan. Or if you wanted to be a good baseball player, sitting at the feet of Derek Jeter. Or if you wanted to be good with computers, you would sit at the feet of Bill Gates. Or if you really wanted to be good at designing houses, you would sit at the feet of Chip and Joanna. Right? Women love Joanna. Like, like the, the, the joke that with Carrie, with uh, Carrie Lonsberry and my wife all the time is like, is how women refer to Joanna as like their, their friend. You know what Joanna says about this kind of stuff as you're designing houses. So you guys get the point, right? Gamaliel was a big deal. And this was Saul's personal teacher and mentor. So Saul was very intelligent, very educated. And the path of his life was set. Learning from Gamaliel, he was going to become a Pharisee and a very important leader in the Jewish faith. And for, for the first century Jews, that was like becoming a doctor. Like if you were to become chief of surgery or something like that, becoming a Pharisee in charge of a synagogue... That was like the best that your culture offered. So this was Saul's trajectory in life. Okay? Then this guy named Jesus showed up and messed everything up. <laughs> Jesus started healing, serving, teaching, and telling everyone that he was the Messiah and that people were no longer bound to the Old Testament, but they were supposed to follow him because he was the way, the truth, and the life. This challenged the worldview of every Jew in the world at that time. Their way of life and understanding of God was going to change. And most Jews liked things just the way they were. Just like us as most human beings, right? Most of you are probably sitting in the same seat you normally sit in every single Sunday. We are sheep and creatures of habit. But then Jesus started getting more and more followers. And this angered the Jewish leaders. Because Jesus directly opposed the pride of the Pharisees. He was really sweet. He was really caring of those in need. But to the Pharisees, he challenged them. He called them vipers and snakes. He laid them out. And this was so threatening to the Jewish leaders at the time that they were like, okay, we can't stand for this. We got to get this guy killed. But what was worse than that 
was after Jesus died, he still kept getting more followers. And his followers kept going around Jerusalem and these major places where Jews were, telling all of the Jews to leave Judaism and follow this guy Jesus. And Saul was in Jerusalem at this time. After Jesus had already died and resurrected, he was in Jerusalem at time watching these disciples, these followers of Jesus, these way followers. That's how the book of Acts describes it. And he was watching them blaspheme his God with their false doctrine and their lies about this man claiming to be the Messiah. And it stirred up something in him. And then in Acts chapter 7, this young follower of Jesus named Stephen starts preaching all about his Lord. Stephen challenges the Jewish leaders. He looks at them in the the same kind of ways that that Jesus and John the Baptist used to. Actually, look look at this in, in Acts 7, 51. Stephen looks into the eyes of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. He says, you stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That alone. Imagine if someone ever dared to talk to you like that as a human being. He's talking to the religious leaders of the time. You are just like your fathers and you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen was fiery. He was an incredible young man. And I want to pick up in verse 54 after, after what happens here. Because he's preaching at them. He'd been telling them about Jesus, about how he was the real deal. And then he comes at the Pharisees and says, you guys are being ridiculous. And picking up in verse 54, Acts chapter 7, stay in Acts here. We're going to kind of move through some of this stuff. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they were, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I still don't even understand what that is. When it says gnashing their teeth, just like, can you imagine somebody doing that? It's like, how dare you? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. Dragging him out of the city, they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. We'll stop there. So this young preacher and follower of Jesus is killed for his faith. The first martyr after Jesus went to the cross, he was the first one. And here's our young man, Saul. Here's our guy. Giving approval to his death. Matter of fact, some commentaries that I read suggest that because it says that the people laid their cloaks at his feet, that he was actually the one that was leading the charge here. He was the one saying, we're going to put this dude to death. Come everybody over here. I'm in charge. Saul was the instigator and the coordinator of the killing of this young man. So our first introduction into this guy Saul is that he was in violent opposition of Jesus' mission here on earth. 
And I want to keep reading here what it says in verse 1 of of chapter 8. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. We'll stop there. So the Bible tells us that from the moment Stephen was killed, everything changed for the church. That up to this point, man, it was just, they were just teaching and preaching and they were just making more disciples. Everything was going well. And then Stephen died. And it says a great persecution broke out. So bad that only the apostles even stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else ran for their life. Now they were officially in danger. But what it says about Saul in verse 3 is pretty frightening. It says, Saul began to destroy the church. It's almost like this whole experience, this idea of watching Stephen be killed, it just sent him into bloodlust. The words actually, when it says began to destroy in Greek, when they, looked, when they compared it to other literature, the other times it showed up in Greek literature were, were describing an animal that had gone crazy and was killing things. Something like this. Just a ravaged animal that had just gotten a taste for blood and it's just going crazy. That's where Saul is at. For those that would do maybe better with a sports reference, if that's a little too violent, oh, it went ahead. For all the football fans out there, remember this guy? This is Bill Romanowski. He was one of my favorite players at the time. Bill Romanowski is known for being one of the craziest men to ever play the game. Matter of fact, it says that, that like, I've watched interviews with him, and, and he, would sit, he would sit in his home before a game, look at pictures of, the, of his opponents, and just try to find a way to hate them in his heart. He would even try to find pictures of their family, just to like, like just imagine just like, like just horrible things to their family. And this guy would get on the field and just do do crazy things. He would break fingers in pile-ups. I mean, he was next level crazy. But if he was looking at you, you knew you were in trouble. So this is kind of like our guy Saul. A lion on the prowl. A Bill Romanowski out to kill you and your family. Saul was now determined that he was going to destroy, to completely wipe out the followers of Jesus for their insubordinate blasphemy of his God. In Acts 22, we're not going to turn there right now, but it says, it says he actually had letters. He got letters from the chief priests and from the Sanhedrin, from the Jewish ruling council. He had support. All these other people watched what he did, and they're like, hey, you have our permission to do whatever you want to these people. He had written authority. And so now he was on a holy war with the backing of the Jewish leaders. And it says, as it mentions here, it says he went from house to house, busting down doors and dragging people away. Men, women, children, didn't matter. Some scholars actually have recently referenced Paul by comparing him to a member of ISIS. Somebody that thinks that this is, this is in honor of my God. That every bit 
of what he was doing was something that he thought to be righteous indignation and something that God would have approved of. And as we look at this guy, there's some questions we got to ask about this. But maybe most importantly is why. Why in the world was this guy Saul so crazy? What about Jesus and his followers would cause this man to declare a jihad against them? And as I've studied, I've come up with, with two things. Number one, if Jesus was a liar, if this guy who came to this earth claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world, if he was a liar, that meant he was guilty of blasphemy and he was completely dishonoring and disrespecting God. Something in the Old Testament that you had the right to stone someone for. Claiming a religious place that you didn't have, that God didn't give you. And not only was he, was he claiming these things, he was leading all these people. He was leading Saul's people, the Jews, God's people. He was taking God's people and leading them to a lie. So that means everything that he did would be justified. This isn't some guy being crazy. This is, this is a man who loves his God saying, I'm going to destroy these people that are spreading lies and false doctrine about how to follow him. And the second reason, and this is maybe more important and relevant for us, is if Jesus was real, if Jesus was everything that he said he was, that meant that everything about Saul's life, his future, his worldview, was now over. It was done. If Jesus was real, and he's saying we're not bound to the Old Testament anymore, his whole path of life, of becoming a Pharisee, of being a rabbi, that meant it was nothing. He had nothing anymore. Everything he devoted his life and energy to was now for nothing. Imagine that. Imagine somebody shows up one day and says, everything you're doing with your life and career is a waste. That's what Jesus would have meant to Paul. And part of where Saul was coming from was that Jesus was a threat. Not just as a blasphemer, not just as maybe a liar. He was a threat to Saul's life. And everything that he was working towards. He was a threat to what he believed. He was a threat to what he wanted going forward. Jesus would be turning his whole life upside down if he was the real deal. And for a lot of us, this is actually very true. To really know Jesus, to really understand what Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of your life, what that really means... It means that your outlook on life, your priorities, your relationships, what comes out of your mouth, what you watch on TV or on the internet, all of it would change. If we really grasp the the significance of Jesus, then a lot about what we do in our normal lives would have to be different. And like Saul, that can make you mad. 
How dare you tell me how to live my life? It can make us defensive, at the very least resistant. And you know what? It's easier to fight against God and to find reasons that these things aren't true and that following Jesus isn't the reality, isn't really what you're supposed to do. It's a lot easier to say that and to want to believe that than the truth. But the incredible thing about Saul's story is that he hadn't met Jesus yet. And he was about to find out that Jesus wasn't finished with him either. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. You with me, guys? I'm getting a lot of quiet looks. In Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I got water on my Bible, doggone it. Um... Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there's a disciple... Oh, here, we'll stop there. Sorry. So what it starts out here in chapter 9 is it starts out by saying... Saul was breathing out murderous threats. Like, think about where he's at. Like, after a little while of, of this happening, he wasn't really warming up to Jesus or Jesus' people. He wasn't any more sweet. He wasn't loving. He wasn't compassionate. He was like a shark in a pool of blood. Like, I still, like, breathing out murderous threats. That just everything that comes out of his mouth is hostile. And he's on his way to Damascus to continue his war path. And it's on this road that he meets Jesus. And as Jesus appears to him in a, in a heavenly flashbang, his first words to him are incredible words. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The word that Jesus uses here for persecute, it means to drive away, to chase off, or to harass or trouble. Basically, it's the idea of saying, why do you keep pushing me away? Why do you keep resisting me? Why do you keep trying to stop what I'm doing? Essentially, why are you fighting me? And let's put ourselves in Saul's shoes for a moment. And think about what would be going through your mind when this happens. When the man that you have been persecuting, the the man whose followers you are trying to kill and arrest, shows up to you miraculously and says, Hey, Drew, Victor, why are you fighting me? 
and what you might be thinking and feeling. So naturally, he says the smart thing, who are you, Lord? Um, But this encounter with Jesus was one of a kind. It's the only time after Jesus ascended into heaven that he came back, and he came back specifically for this guy. For this guy. An enemy of Jesus and an enemy of his followers. You know, most people who met Jesus left him healed, but not Saul. Saul was left blinded and wrecked by being confronted by the truth about the man that he had been fighting. And there's truth in this for us as well. If you're resisting Jesus, if you're trying to resist what he's doing in your life, sometimes it'll take being humbled and blinded. Being brought to your knees. Not being able to see, feel, or understand what you're doing with your life. It's not a gentle, sometimes it's not a gentle healing. It's not the rubbing of the hands on your eyes. Sometimes it's Jesus showing up in your life to make you fall on your knees, go, why are you resisting me? Matter of fact, you're going to be blinded for a little while until you see what I'm doing for you. Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 10, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen the man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! Exclamation mark. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim to my name to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their, and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and, and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I'm going to stop there. So Jesus shows up now to a man named Ananias. And he appears to him as well to tell him that he's got an important job to do. His job was to heal the murdering madman that was killing and arresting his friends. This is like being told by God that Osama bin Laden is coming to your house and you're going to heal him. Naturally, you'd probably be feeling a lot. Like Ananias. A little fear, hesitancy, maybe, maybe a little anger. God, do you know what he's done? Do you know, do you know what he's done? And Jesus' response to him, this is so cool. Jesus' response to him is, go, this man is my chosen instrument. I have big plans for this guy. You go because I'm choosing him for something special. this murderer, this violent enemy of Christianity, I'm going to use him to preach the truth to thousands. 
He's going to suffer as my disciple for preaching the truth around the world. This is incredibly powerful. First of all, that Jesus wasn't just going to miraculously intervene in Saul's life. He wanted to lead him to a faithful man named Ananias and for Ananias to be the one that would heal, baptize, and teach him. And I love this because this is how Jesus works in our lives too. His goal is never just to try to do a miracle or just to try to show us something spectacular. He, wants, he never intended for us to figure out things in our relationship with him alone. His intention is always to send people into our lives, to love us and to show us the truth. For some of you, that might be even why you're here this moment. Jesus used this guy, who we know very little about, to change the life of one of the most important men in all of history. And second of all, it paints the bigger picture of how Jesus has plans for all of us for something bigger and extraordinary when we stop fighting him and what he's trying to do in our lives. He wants you to be a chosen instrument. I'm going to bring up my friend Ronnie. He's out here from Orange County and he's going to share a little bit of his story and how this connects to his life. Good? <laughs> My name is Ronnie Azad. I'm from Orange County. I'm uh, in the singles ministry over there. I want to thank Jake for having me out here. Blessed to be out here in beautiful Palm Desert. I'm sure my testimony in relation to Saul's journey and his walk with God. Um, so just like Saul, I was raised in church and scripture in Orange County as a kingdom kid. I've known Jake since I was about this tall. <laughs> Um, the thing is, though, my true walk with God didn't start until later on in life. Um, growing up in church and having parents who led me by scripture, you would think I would turn out to be a pretty good man with great intentions, especially for a Lord, but this wasn't the case. Uh, I've spent many years being held in darkness and depression, pushing God away from myself and holding on to resentments uh, that would eventually almost kill me a couple of times, so... Deep down, I always knew God was out there, and I was at a point where I lost faith completely and cried to him, asking why I was always held the short end of the stick. As a teenager, I started to question many things, including the intentions of our Lord. I truly felt um, that the way I was brought into church, the way uh, God, I was brought here was forced, so it kind of pushed me away from God. Um, the fact that I had to go to church three times a week still left a bad taste in my mouth. I hated coming to church for a long time. And also I had my own reasons why I felt God wasn't there for me. I felt that if God was truly a God of love and compassion, then why did my birth mother abandon me when I was only a baby? Why did my grandfather raise me, <clears throat> that raised me have to die from cancer at an early age? Why was I able to connect to others and relate as a child? Why were they so depressed and have to think of suicide so often? Why? I really didn't understand. I started isolating, uh, keeping to myself. I would express how I felt, by the way. I would dress for the music I listened to and the violence I'd be a part of. It didn't take me too long to eventually resist our Lord completely and do my best to convince others that God wasn't there for us or to speak on how he was someone in control who had no empathy or compassion for the human life. And suffering led me to three overdoses, a couple of trips to rehab, one trip to the psych ward, being arrested seven times with a strike and five felonies in my record. None of this stopped me until I finally surrendered and knew there may be a way of life for me, um, a life of meaning, 
a life worth being joyous for. In my last visit to jail, my mother, who is still a woman of faith and disciple of over 20 years, as well as my handsome brothers who are sitting right here, <laughs> they came to visit me. And uh, the love, forgiveness, and compassion they had for me really had an impact on me and uh, showed me that God still still there for me. He still loved me. He never left. And this really got me thinking. Um, it's even got me starting to pray again. And it was the start of the beginning of my faith to grow. While I was in jail on my birthday is when I decided to start studying the Bible immediately when I'd be released and start to change my life for the better. And I would start living a life for a Lord. So once I was released, I started studying the Bible. And within three weeks, I was baptized by my mother and my younger brother, Titus, on Easter Day of this year. <clears throat> In the past year, God has done so much for me. I now run a super house and hold, as a role, hold a role as a role model for young men to start their lives again in a spiritual manner. I've had the chance to make amends to my family, and to be forgiven by them, and gain an even more meaningful relationship with them, with God in the middle of us. I work in a drug and alcohol treatment center where I have the chance to make a difference in someone's life by sharing my experience, strength, and hope as through the faith and word of God. I have relationships with men and women who are there for me. They encourage me, and they bring me up when I'm feeling down. See, the thing is, God does amazing things. He's a plan for everyone. So I firmly believe that anyone and everyone has the ability to change. I know through my experience that I can. You know, if Paul can, if I can, I firmly believe God has it in anyone's heart to do so as well. Thanks for having me up here. Um, thank you so much, Ryan, for sharing. Uh, you know, I'm, I was very grateful to have Ronnie be able to come out here. With us, and I have Ronnie and I have known each other for a long time, and uh, the day that I found out that he got baptized was just—I mean, I like fell out of my chair. I was so, I was so excited, and uh, being able to see him again, and in so many ways, he gives me so much hope uh, for my life, for my brother, and uh, just grateful for him as a friend, just to be able to have this new stage of life together. And I know that this even this is part of the story of Paul here coming to fruition. What happens when we stop fighting what Jesus is trying to do in our lives yeah. and we start letting Jesus take control? Amen. This encounter with Jesus changed everything for Saul. And not long after this, we see him appear in the book of Acts and this angry, prideful enemy of Jesus has changed his name from Saul and he's now being called Paul. And he's now preaching to people. And he's telling people. This guy that was an enemy of Jesus is now saying, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Amen. Paul ended up becoming the most influential man in the Bible outside of Jesus. He wrote more books. He wrote most of the books in the New Testament. He started more churches, taught more people, changed culture, and influenced more people than anyone else. Jesus completely transformed this man's life. Jesus can do the same for any single one of us in here. No matter what your background is, no matter how deep you feel like you are. It 
doesn't matter if this is your first time in a church building or you've been around God for most of your life, just like Paul. There's some questions for us to ask ourselves in this. Are you fighting against Jesus in your life? Are you resisting the truth and how he's trying to change you? What are you afraid of? What are you holding on to? What about your life does Jesus threaten? It's time to stop fighting and to start finding out what it means to be a chosen instrument. We're about to take communion together. And the point of communion is for us to reflect on how far Jesus was willing to go, how far, how much he was willing to do to fight for us, even though we fight against him. At the end of Paul's life, he, so, he wrote something in 1 Timothy 1. I want to look at this together here as we close out. I'm actually going to read starting in verse 12. It says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul realized at the end of his life that even after years of following Jesus, he was no more worthy of being with Jesus than he was the day that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Still, after years and years, he didn't say, I was the worst of sinners. He says, I am the worst of sinners. But it's in me, it's through me, the worst of sinners, that you get to see Christ's grace and love being displayed more powerfully. And what I love in this is is we get to see a man who has realized what happens when you stop fighting Jesus and you let him take control the way that he wants to. But we have to give that to him. And it doesn't make us any less guilty. It doesn't make us any any more deserving of God's love. But his love so far reaches us that even this, this violent man, even this man who was a terrorist to God's people, could be used for something better. So as we take communion together, I want us to reflect on this. To maybe ask ourselves, are we fighting against Jesus? doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're not. Are you fighting against what Jesus is trying to do in your life? And if you are visiting with us, I want to invite you, please, Talk to somebody that invited you out and ask them about studying the Bible. Let's, let's, let's engage with Jesus here at this time of our lives. Let's say a word of prayer. God, I do want to thank you so much for how much you love us so far beyond who we are and what we've done. That God, you would rescue this young man, Saul, and, and 
turn him into the man Paul, into the man that you used him as a chosen instrument. Well, Father God, I, I know that so many of us, our stories are similar. That maybe we've been around church our whole life, sitting in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, trying to resist you and fight you out of our lives. God, because of fear, because of anger, because of hurt, because of so many different things. God, I pray that you will tear these walls down. Help us, help us, Father, to, to really surrender ourselves to you so that you will transform our lives. God, I pray right now that as we take communion together, as we meditate on what Jesus has done on the cross, God, we will be humbled and we'll be grateful. But God, as well, that we, that we, will, we, will, we will make decisions to let you change our lives. We love you so much. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.